Amen. Amen. Well, this is the day that the Lord has made. Uh, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. Uh, excited to be here with you. Thank you, Brother Nathan. Uh, we, you know, I will admit, uh, God is working on me and working uh, with me uh, and bringing me to new realizations and understandings uh, of of my role in this season, uh, and is showing me, um, indeed, that God has, has called me for such a time as, as this. Uh, and I struggled, um, I struggled a little bit uh, with how to approach this, uh, this sermon and uh, this moment. But I realize now um, that God gave me this message, um, and gave me this message, uh, in some senses, a, a long time ago. Um, and so I'm thankful, uh, because I do believe I have a message from the Lord this morning. If you turn with me to the book of Job, uh, we'll read Job chapter 1, uh, and we'll read verses 8 through 12, uh, and then Job also 2 verses 3 through 10. Um, but I will note, in some senses, our text uh, for this moment is simply the book of Job. So Job, chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, the word of the Lord reads thus. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. <laughs> Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he will cur surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, skipping down to Job chapter two, verses three through 10. After Job has been touched uh, with the afflictions that Satan described. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he sh still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin 
in what he said. The word of God and the word of strength. Let's look to the Lord. O gracious and eternal God, we give you thanks. In this moment, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would move me aside and that the Holy Spirit in us would minister to our very souls and our very actions. Reveal, heal, and transform in this moment, I ask, Lord, in your name. Amen. And praise God. Well, I decided this morning not to give any examples because I didn't want to get in trouble. But you know the story. Somebody's doing well. They have it all going on. They seem to have everything. They have a beautiful house and a beautiful family. They are at the pinnacle of their profession. You see them on TV all of the time. And then you see a fall. Uh, you read in the life section or the sports section of the daily progress that this person is filing for bankruptcy or they have had uh, a problem. And, and, and I don't want to give any examples, but I know you have seen that if you read the news. And unlike me, if you're active on social media, you probably see it all the time. And your thoughts might go to the idea, surely this person has done something wrong to be in this position. There's another man who seemed to have it all. Uh, a great job, lots of currency, uh, a big house. Uh, if there was TV in his day, he would have probably been on the show uh, Pimp My Camel. <laughs> we would have been watching and seeing what he was doing. And indeed, he had a reputation for throwing amazing parties. Uh, but this man decided to try and make sure those parties were holy. Uh, and, and I like to imagine the DJ that came spinning at that party and the guest start, would start saying uh, that there ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party because a Holy Ghost party don't stop. Uh, and, and in the course of a few hours, he lost it all. In a string of disaster after disaster after disaster, his currency was stolen. His house was destroyed by natural disaster, taking his children in the process. Then he became very sick, and his body was covered with boils. And yet this man maintained his innocence. He said, I did nothing that should have caused me to lose everything. And it seemed like the whole world turned against him. And the story goes on in Job that only four people came to check up on him. And after watching him sitting purely stunned for days, they listened to his story and they didn't believe him. You must have done something wrong, they told him again and again. And this person continually speaks as though He's innocent. This man was Job. And the truth of the matter is that in, in a very real sense, our theology has not changed much 
in the thousands of years since Job, we still often believe that if there is something bad happening in someone's life, it must be because they did something wrong. But the truth of the matter is that, that but for the grace of God, there go I. I, I know people for whom this is their story, who have lost everything, who have lost their family, lost their health in the course of a week. And it, it's difficult. And in fact, Job to this day confounds the scholars. It's a, a very difficult book. And it challenges our ideas and our conceptions of suffering. And it makes us ask why. The interesting thing about the story in the book of Job that we get to read in the Bible many, many, many years later is that we get a view that Job doesn't get. Uh, and perspective matters. Uh, as I like to say, when Goliath came up against the Israelites, the soldiers all thought, he's so big we can never kill him. David looked at that giant and thought, he's so big I can't miss. Perspective perspective. The first thing I want you to understand this morning is that sometimes our situation can look bleak. All Job sees is his own perspective, what's happening to him, calamity after calamity after calamity, with only the survivors to tell him that there's been bad news, and he ends up on uh, what I call uh, the trash heap, scratching himself with a broken shard and he has four friends who come to his aid and they accuse him saying he must have erred he must have done wrong he gets blamed for his situation and to make matters worse he calls out for God he sees God as his accuser and calls out for understanding and God is seemingly silent like God has slung arrows at him, then left him to deal with the aftermath. Lost it all, bruised and beaten. Friends that make enemies seem merciful and seemingly removed from the presence of God and blamed for what has happened to him, whether it was his fault or not. Now, I'm thankful that most of us aren't Job, but sometimes I recognize our situation looks bleak too. Our situation looks like we've lost it all and that everyone has forsaken us. And sometimes we feel like Job. Sometimes we even walk around living into a Job-like existence. And the truth is, sometimes we have agency in a bleak situation. Sometimes the fires are raging uh, against us because of what we've done. But that doesn't change the bleakness doesn't change the feeling of perhaps being outside the presence of God does not make it less difficult to bear. The truth is that sometimes our situation looks bleak. The second thing I came by to tell you this morning is that when your situation looks bleak, you might be in the midst of a battle. How can I make this plain? There was a man named James. James was the baby in a family of 10 children. He was the child of a, a sharecropper. 
And, and when James was growing up, he did a bunch of odd jobs, but then he really found a home on the track. And, and starting in junior high, he used to practice track all the time. He went to university and had success on the track. He was really good. He was great. And so in 1936, he went to the Olympics in Berlin, Germany. And James Jesse Owens won four gold medals and shattered records at those Olympics. Now, Jesse Owens could have seen his running and jumping as just running and jumping. But, but, but the truth is that even in human terms, that wasn't the battle that he was fighting. <laughs> you, you see, Hitler was using the 1936 Olympics to promote uh, an idea of Aryan supremacy, to, to promote the, the myth that, that one person or one group of people are inherently superior and another portion of humanity is, is inherently in, in inferior. And so Jesse Owens was running a, a, a race. Yes, he was running and jumping, but he was doing more than that. He was fighting against principalities and ideas that needed to be cast back to the pit of hell he was fighting and he was fighting whether he saw it or not whether he could acknowledge it or not i want to tell you beloved keep fighting job sitting on the heap of ashes is in the midst of one of the most epic battles in recorded history but he never knows it to understand the profoundness of this battle, you've got to understand something about who God is as revealed in what God has done. So, so forgive me for a moment, a quick long theology break. Stick with me now. This is, this is Troy theology. I won't ascribe it to anybody else. I, I remember when I was a, a child, uh, I asked a question, and I hear this from kids all the time today. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then he knew all the bad we would do. So why didn't he just not create us or simply stop us from, from doing it? It's funny, children ask the best questions, just like this one. And, and I think, again, Troy theology, I think the answer to this question has to do with why God created us. I believe that God created us humans because God wanted to create a being that could choose to love him and serve him. Not just choose to act lovingly towards him, but to truly choose to love him completely and totally. A, a being who had freedom and within that freedom would choose to love God for who God is. Not choose to usurp him, to try to become him, but to simply love him. Our ability to choose is so very important to God. How do I know? Because in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree that humanity was told not to eat. Uh, and if I were engineering the situation, I wouldn't have put the tree in the garden. <laughs> and if it were just about not eating, God would have perhaps put the tree there. But when the man and the woman went to go and grab the fruit, they, their hand would snatch back. Instead, he let it happen. With all the wrong and sin and pain in the world, God still honors our free choice. God gives us the freedom and accepts 
when we do not choose him. And that's how important our freedom is to God. In fact, God values our freedom so much that God knew all the mess that I would do and perhaps that you would do and still chose to create me so that there would be an inkling or a possibility that I would love the Lord my God with all of myself and therefore step into the fullness of who God called us to be. Uh-huh. And God puts up with, with some of us, like Job, who sometimes say, I wish I was never born. And God puts up with all of the destruction that our free will causes. Oh, but he did even more than that. When our choices brought us too far from God's perfection to make communion with God possible, God sacrificed his only begotten son, not for the certainty that we would choose him, but for the mere possibility that we would choose him. Thank you, God. And I believe that God does all of this because our free will is at the very core of why we exist, of why God created us. And so, when God says, have you considered my servant Job? God is showing an example of it being worth it, an example of his sacrifice being worth it. I know we have a couple of teachers in the audience. Some of you pour your heart continually into your students, and and, and so many of them don't make it, but you point to the one that did make it, and you hold them up. Some of you go through such struggles and say, even if one child makes it, It's worth all of the struggle and sacrifice. God holds Job up as this one child. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan responds, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan isn't just asking a question. Satan is questioning everything that God has done. Satan is calling into question something that was so important to God that he chose to send his only begotten son to die for its possibility. Satan is calling into question something that is at the center of God's heart. This is a cosmic battle of epic proportions. Satan is questioning the very heart of the human experience. Have you considered Job, God says? Have you considered Joseph? Have you considered Mary, Kate, Luan? Ah, says Satan. Does Job, does John, does Mary, does Juan, do they love you for nothing? Satan challenges everything. Satan says, Job isn't just upright. Job isn't just loving God for no reason. Job acts that way because, as the scholars might say, he is interested. Job isn't upright. Job doesn't act uprightly because he loves you. Job acts upright because you bless him. Uh, or to put it another way, because you've been so good, God, because you protect, protected him, because you've given him everything, and Job isn't a fool, of course he is the way he is. But that's not free will. That's not Job loving and trusting you freely. That's Job doing what's in Job's best interests. Or to put it another way, ha says Satan, God, your goodness prevents Job from acting freely to love you. 
<laughs> you're so good and Job isn't foolish. So he overwhelms your ability for freedom. Uh, maybe an example will help. I know uh, we're in a church that's filled with good parents and, and guardians and grandparents. Uh, and if your kids are doing really well, the question has probably come up. Are they doing really well because they become good at being around me and following my rules and all that I give them? Or are they doing really well because that's internalized within them? And in some senses, you might have a moment where you realize, I can't fully know the answer to that question until I'm in a situation where I'm not around. Your presence perhaps precludes an answer to the very question. Uh, but I think it's even more profound than that, church, because in arguing that Job serves God because of the goodness of God, Satan is also saying that God's goodness actually hinders Job's free will. That in some senses, Job is just cashing a paycheck. He serves God, and every two weeks, he takes in the blessings to the bank and exchanges them for some cash. Job's in it for the paycheck, Satan says. Satan is saying that because Job doesn't fear God for nothing, all the stuff God tolerates because of humanity's free will is for nothing. That not even Job can love God for who God is because God's favor makes that impossible. And that might be true even if Job doesn't believe it to be true. <laughs> for example, Peter was probably being honest when he said he would never deny Christ. He thought he wouldn't. He thought wrong. <laughs> That's the question at the heart of what we're reading this morning. Satan is questioning the very moral foundations of God's creation. All right, so theology breakover. <laughs> now remember, perspective is, is everything. Uh, we are given fuller perspective, and so we get to understand some of the why. But this context is never explained to Job. What to Job was at first simply his own personal suffering was in fact a cosmic battle of great proportions at the center of God's heart. Job initially thought it was just about him. Uh, the theologian Gutierrez uh, describes how Job went on a transformation through the chapters to the point where he realized it wasn't just about him, but was about a community and what it means to be a community that suffers. But originally, Job thought it was just about him. But Job's, Job's situation was more than just about Job. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so the question is, can Job love God in the absence of, of the benefits of God. Can Job love God completely for who he is instead of what he does? Can we really love God and not just love what God does for us? Can we love God without self-interest in what God does for us today? Can we love God wherever or whatever situation we are in. The third thing I came by to ask you this morning or to tell you this morning is simple but important. Uh, it's simply that the battle is not yours, it's the Lord. 
Sometimes it might feel like it's your battle because you're in the midst of it, but it's not yours. It's the Lord's battle. Let me, let me see if I can make this plain. Throughout a great deal of history, including to this day's, fighting armies were broken up into forces. Infantry, cavalry, artillery. So infantry fights on foot. Artillery shoots projectiles. Cavalry is soldiers who fight mounted on horseback. Typically, now it's not just horseback. So a, a cavalryman mounts on a horse and goes to attack or defend against the enemy. The horse is important. The horse helps the cavalryman do all kinds of things. Approach the enemy faster, stay away from the, the fists of the enemy. The horse is in the thick of the battle. They see and experience all of it. But the battle isn't the horses. The battle is the cavalryman's. And Job's battle, our battle, is not ours. It's the cavalryman's. It's the Lord's. It, it, it's the Calvary man's battle, and the battle was already won because the Calvary man won it on Calvary. If the horse trusts the Calvary man, and, and the Calvary man is sure, the horse will come out of every battle all right at the end of the day. Indeed, we might be a part of a cosmic battle of epic proportions. We don't know. It might be tough. It might be impossible. You may even end up scratching yourself with shards of, of pottery for relief. But even then, the battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. And so the fourth thing I came by to tell you this morning is, is really, in some senses, the, the most important thing I want to say for where we are as a community today. I came by to tell you that worship is the answer. Oh, you might not recognize the battle. Job didn't. I know three, at least three quarters of the time I don't. I think that what's going on with me is about me, and I might be right. I don't know. But consider for the moment that sometimes the battle is more than what's just going on with you. It certainly was for Job, and we get that glimpse in the scriptures, but we don't have the opportunity to read the book of Troy. I don't have that opportunity, so I don't know. But in the midst of it, I know that worship is the answer. You might be a single parent raising your child thinking that's what it's about, and you might not recognize the cosmic battle going on over you and your child. You might, not, you might be struggling with addiction and not recognize the cosmic battle going on. And if I were honest with myself, I would say that I don't like the idea that we represent more than ourselves. Don't like how in the classroom or walk, walking down the streets, we sometimes are expected to speak on behalf of a group of people instead of ourselves. Don't like the idea that I'm not my own, that I've been bought with a price don't like sometimes the pressure that that makes me make me feel but i recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood in job's case we know the why huh. it's a question that is often at the very heart of our existence why it's the question that drives us if we are willing to ask. 
And it's the question that the book of Job spends the majority of the book answering. Why am I in the situation I'm in? Why is the world unfair? And yes, though, we perhaps have the answer to Job's why. We don't have the answer to our own. I'd like to point out that Job asks again and again and again. The book is literally circular, and he asks again and again and again and again. You should read it, y'all. It's awesome. Um, Even when God shows up in the last four approximate chapters, even when God shows up, he never answers the question. Job was restored, and there's so much awesomeness in how he was restored, and there's an awesome testimony in there. But even when he was restored, his situation was never resolved. He never got the answer to his why, but Job's why gave way to worship. Job's why gave way to trust. Job's story, in fact, is not that much different than our own. At the end of the day, we have, in some cases, as few answers as Job. Our pain is real. Our sorrow and questioning is real. Our cursing the day we were born sometimes is real. Our scorn, perhaps, for for friends who aren't there for us is real. Job and all of that was real, and for us it is real as well. But at the end of the day, Job transformed his why into worship. His why turned into worship of God. His why is centered in a love of who God is. At the end of the day, our will can give way to God's will. That's the highest form of being human, if you please, because in questioning why we seek understanding, but in turning our why into worship, we gain redemption. We gain the opportunity to know and trust that our God is God and indeed that anything that we are going through can be redeemed by our God. Turn your why into a full seeking of who God is. When Job did it, When he turned his why into worship, God showed up in a whirlwind and in poetic language simply said, I'm God. That was Job's answer. And that was enough because he recognized that it was time to worship The spiritual truth this morning, I believe, for those who are willing to receive it, is that our authentic worship of God is the true answer to God's question and to ours. The answer to our why is to love God simply for who God is. That's how God answers Job's question. I am God, he says. And frankly, that's enough. The answer to our why is simply we worship. We honor God for who he is. 
we wrestle and we chase and we don't know why and yet we come together and worship oh and in those moments where the pain perhaps is so palpable that we don't know how to worship we come together and worship together so that we can be reconciled to god and each other when we turn our why into worship we heap hot coals on our enemy's head. When we turn our why into worship, we have the opportunity to take what is happening with us and become a part of God's beloved vision and purpose for this world through us. When we take our why and turn it into worship, we sit in the midst of a city called Charlottesville and we begin even right now to see it reconciled to God and each other. And in closing, if I'm permitted to do this, I know back in March in our assembly, some of us asked why. Some of us asked why God? Some of us asked why Paul? Why? Ah, it is July 2021, and I want to acknowledge the truth that some of us are asking, why? Why? And the simple answer is that I don't know why. And I remember I emailed a friend and said, hey, why? Uh, and his answer was ultimately, I'm going to ask you to trust God, Troy. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, I'm going to trust God. I might know, not know the answer to the why. But the why can always be redeemed for God's glory if we take our why and transform it into worship. Oh, I recognize it's a difficult thing to do. And in my closest to Job moment, I remember I was in a service and somebody got up and said, everybody clap to God for the thing that was my job moment. And I remember as a room full of people stood up and began to clap, I wondered, am I standing up out of appearances? Am I going to clap in worship of God? I honestly don't remember what I did, but I can tell you if I stood up and my hands were moving, they were not moving in worship. They were moving so that I didn't make a scene. In that moment, I questioned why this man of God would possibly ask me to worship God in that moment. And later, I recognized that that was the most profound moment of healing in the situation. 
that indeed it was my restoration. It was my doubling of camels. It was uh, the return of my proverbial children, as which Job experienced at the end of the book, because in my moment of thinking about being about me, and indeed it was about me, I recognized finally that I trusted in God and that why my why could be turned in to worship. Church, we are pressing on. And as I say, I close for the second time. Forgive me. Forgive me. We are pressing on. And we might now know all of the answers to our why. But I implore you that together we can turn our why into worship. Because I know that some in our assembly see and understand the rest of the book, that indeed victory was called to this place for such a time as this, who have told me explicitly that they are and know that maybe there is a cosmic battle going on, and even if there isn't, our why needs to turn into worship. So victory, as the, 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 the praise team is coming back, I want you to just for a moment turn our why into worship. I know it's difficult. I just described how difficult it was for me in that moment. But whatever your why is, and however you worship God, if you worship God with your hands lifted, or if you worship God with your head bowed, I want us just for a moment to experience together turning our why into worship. Vicky, will you go ahead in this moment and turn your why into worship? Worship. And if you've never experienced the truth that ultimately we live on the other side of God's gracious gift to us in Christ, if you've never experienced the filling that comes when we recognize that our lives are not our own, but they are God's, if you haven't accepted the truth that God so loved you that he sent Jesus for you, you have an opportunity now with every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to give this assembly a moment to simply raise your hand if you haven't experienced, if you haven't accepted Christ. And if you're live streaming or listening to this later, I want to let you know that you don't have to do that in a service. You can do that anywhere. You can do that in your bedroom, in your living room, as you're walking down the downtown mall. God is calling. He wants to turn the essence of your life and redeem it for his glory and to fill you with his purpose. To God be the glory for the great things he's doing. Amen.